Here's the context. Jesus crucified, dead and buried before sundown on Friday in the grave, mostly dead. Nope, all the way dead, all day on Saturday. Open your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 20. There's the context. If you've got a Bible, and I hope you do, open it up. If not, you can use the Bible in the seat back in front of you. You can borrow from your neighbor. You can use your device if you want to do that. John chapter 20, we're going to read the entire thing. Verse 1 says, Now on the first day of the week, that's Sunday in the Jewish culture because Saturday would be the final day of the week, Sabbath. So Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. What does she think's happened? His body's been stolen, and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he, that's John, saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. She had never seen a glorified body before, that makes sense. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to the Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said all these things to her. And on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed, him, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. So the other, other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. 
Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came in, stood among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet have believed. This is my favorite part. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Pray with me. God, we invite you now to open our spiritual eyes and our spiritual ears, open our hearts so that we may behold wonderful things from your law, that we may understand today that you are risen indeed and that we may be able to live the resurrection life. Encourage, convict, renew, and refresh. We pray these things together, O God, in the name of Christ, the people of God said, amen. Unfortunately, many who desire to understand Christianity do not start with this very critical question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Those who endeavor to understand Christianity oftentimes begin with this question, what are his followers like? But we don't evaluate a restaurant based on the people we know that eat there, right? We shouldn't evaluate Jesus based on the folks that we know who claim to be his followers. That can lead us down a very treacherous path. And for some people, they might ask this question, what did Jesus teach? What did Jesus teach? But if you read the biblical accounts very carefully, you'll find that Jesus' teaching is not at the crux of the narrative. A person is at the crux of the narrative. In other words, the core question is not related to his activity, but to his identity. The core question is not what did he teach, but who is he? So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to allow John chapter 20 that we just read along with the rest of Scripture as support, to speak to four possible answers to this question, who is Jesus? The first question that we often hear, or first answer that we often hear to this question, and some of you may have heard this answer before, some of you may even hold this answer in your heart, and this is your conviction that Jesus was a good blank. You ever heard that before? Jesus was a good teacher, He was a good prophet, he was a good example, he was a good man, he was a good blank, whatever that blank is for you. But look back at our text from this morning, and we'll use John chapter 20 to answer the question. John concludes his chapter this way, he says, but these, and by these, he means the whole book, verses or chapters 1 through 20, and even kind of the postlude in chapter 21, these are written so that you may believe that what? Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. In his biography of Jesus, a guy named Luke in chapter 24 says that after Jesus was resurrected, the disciples worshipped him. Listen close now. For first century Jews like Luke and John, uh, the, the notion that a man could be God or would be worthy of worship would be unthinkable. It would even be blasphemy, the punishment for which was death. 
God was high, exalted, and completely other. They revered him. They would not even speak or write the name of God. Even modern Jews, that's how they write the name of God, G-D, because he was so exalted, and only God was worthy of worship. So when John calls Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, and Luke says that the disciples worshiped him, please understand, they knew exactly what they were claiming, that Jesus is God. So the problem then with the conclusion that Jesus is a good blank is that we've arrived at that conclusion based on the biblical account, but at the same time, we've ignored the Bible's own claims about Jesus. Do you understand? So thus, in order to hold that Jesus was a good blank, it forces us to do violence to the biblical text. Let me tell you what I mean. Just by way of example, Thomas Jefferson, one of the founding fathers of the United States, uh, rejected the possibility of anything supernatural ever happening in the world. So he quite literally took a knife and cut out anything supernatural that happened in the scripture. Uh, A picture of Thomas Jefferson's Bible is up here on the screen. Can you see the places he cut out? He just cut out the supernatural. Jefferson's revised gospel account ends this way. There laid they Jesus, and rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher, and departed. And that's it. That's it. It's over, according to Jefferson. Uh, The Jesus Seminar, it's a group of modern scholars, they concluded that anything supernatural in the Gospels was a later addition. So like Jefferson, they eliminated anything supernatural, including the resurrection, thus allowing for the conclusion that Jesus was a good blank and nothing else. But listen, both Jefferson and the Jesus Seminar admit by implication that one must do violence to the text, in Jefferson's case, quite literally, in order to conclude that Jesus was nothing more than a good blank, because the Gospels indeed emphatically claim that Jesus was far more than a good blank. Whatever that blank is, he's God. By the way, just... Just a side note, if we tried this same tactic with any other historical text, we'd be dismissed as irresponsible fools, wouldn't we? Just cut it right out if you don't like it. C.S. Lewis said it this way. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's a foolish thing. To discontinue our spiritual search at the conclusion that Jesus is a good blank requires that we do violence to the biblical account. The Bible simply will not allow us to stop there. Answer number two for this question, who is Jesus? Perhaps you're skeptical. Perhaps you're skeptical. And you would answer the question, who is Jesus, by saying, well, he's really nothing at all. He's really nothing at all. You're just skeptical, maybe even cynical. Perhaps someone drug you to church today. Perhaps you're here to impress a girl, in which case I hope she's really cute. And that's that's awesome, right? And, And I would say to you a couple of things. One is I actually very much respect your desire to explore the claims of Christ despite your skepticism. If you're brand new here, you probably don't know me from Adam, but I just want you to know, for what it's worth, I respect that. Second, if you read the gospel accounts very, very carefully, you're going to find some friends. You'll, You'll find a number of skeptics that were eventually convinced. And I know 
that I likely can't convince you today of Christ's resurrection, but I'd love to give you three reasons. Three reasons why I believe the biblical account. So I want to address skeptics. One, it's called the plausible conclusions argument. The plausible conclusions argument. Track with me here. A guy named J. Warner Wallace is a well-respected and tenured uh, homicide detective in Los Angeles, California, and he specializes in cold cases. You ever watch those shows about cold cases where, like, you know, they can't solve a crime and it kind of sits on a shelf for 25 years and then someone solves the cold case? Okay, J. Warner Wallace is not a character on TV. He's an actual real homicide detective that specializes in cold cases. So Wallace explains that one tactic for solving cases is by first observing the crime scene and then listing all the circumstances that could have possibly led to the crime scene that you observed. And then what he does is he uses the evidence to eliminate the implausible conclusions. So, for example, if Wallace investigated a death, he could eliminate the possibility of suicide if there were multiple gunshot wounds, right? You don't shoot yourself more than once. Wallace explains that he solved many cases simply by eliminating the implausible conclusions. So, so now recall our reading from John chapter 20. Upon observing the empty tomb, Mary tells the disciples this. They have taken, did you see it? They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Later in the chapter, she'll accuse a man who she presumes to be the gardener of taking the body as well. And so what Mary assumes, many modern scholars actually still hold, that Jesus' body was stolen. So now, let's bring Wallace's tactic to bear and see if the stolen body theory is plausible. Who might have stolen the body? Well, let's say the Romans took it. Let's say the Romans took it. But when the Jesus movement began to overtake the Roman Empire, why didn't the Romans just simply produce the body and say, aha, here he is, still dead? It's not a plausible conclusion. Could it have been the Jews? Same argument. When the Jesus movement began to disrupt Judaism, why didn't the Jews just produce the body and go, aha, he's dead? Not a plausible conclusion. All right, what about the disciples? Let's say the disciples took the body in order to make up a resurrection story. But if that was the case, why not produce the body when you're being threatened with torture, imprisonment, beheading, and crucifixion? In short, based on the historical evidence, the stolen body theory is not a plausible conclusion. Now watch this. Set the Bible aside for a moment, skeptics. Set the Bible aside, because if you're a skeptic, you probably don't take the Bible on its face anyway. Let's just talk about history and scholarship. Most historians, regardless of faith background, would affirm a historical Jesus who, among other things, claimed to be God, was purported to be a miracle worker, was crucified, buried in a tomb, and that tomb was found empty three days later. It's also clear that after his death, Jesus' followers experienced visions of Jesus, the same Jesus they had known during his life, and began to declare that Jesus had risen from the grave, that he was Lord and he was the Son of God. They began to claim these things. See, that's all verifiable historical evidence outside of the biblical account. So you may be familiar with any number of alternative theories that profess to explain the historical circumstances without the resurrection. We can explain the crime scene, but the evidence does not 
bear it out. If you apply Wallace's tactic to any of those proposals, you will find that there is not a plausible conclusion apart from the resurrection. That's just one alternative theory, skeptics. I would strongly encourage you to do your own research. Put the Bible to the test. God's not afraid of scrutiny. But I'd give you fair warning, though, if you take me up on my challenge. J. Warner Wallace actually applied his own tactics for solving cold cases and as a result concluded that Jesus physically rose from the dead and Wallace subsequently converted from atheism to Christianity. So if you take me up on my challenge, just be warned. The second argument for the resurrection that, that, that verifies the biblical account, biblical account for me is the nature of the biblical accounts themselves. Three observations just quickly from John chapter 21st. John writes this, that on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. Now, we might just kind of bypass that statement as if it's just kind of a neutral statement of fact. But the reality is that women in the first century could not even testify in court. Josephus, he's a first century historian. He writes this, he says, and I quote, let not the testimony of women, plural, even if there's more than one woman, be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. I don't think that's a compliment. Celsus, he's a second century critic of Christianity, writes this. He mocks the resurrection story because multiple women were noted as witnesses. For John, the first person to see an empty tomb was a woman, and there are no less than five women named in all four Gospels. In short, if someone made this story up, they never would have included female witnesses. However, women are included. Why? Because that's how it happened. Second, the Gospels record a substantial amount of detail. A substantial amount of detail. Think about it. When somebody's lying to you, they don't include a lot of detail, do they? But look at the detail in John chapter 20 alone. John tells us that it was dark, that Peter and John ran, that John got there first, that Peter caught up and he went into the tomb first. John tells us how the burial clothes were arranged, how many angels were there, what color they were wearing, and what they asked Mary, and that's just the first 12 verses. This is the case in every gospel account. Painstaking detail. Third, that's why I believe the gospel account in ancient literature when it comes to the nature of the gospel accounts themselves. In ancient literature, the inclusion of names in a text served as a sort of footnote to authenticate information. It was a way to invite the reader to verify the story that was being recorded. Do you ever read on Wikipedia sometimes and somebody says something just in parentheses beside it? It says citation needed. You ever read that? And you're going, yeah, well, I don't buy that until we've got a citation. This is why names were included in first century literature. Uh, in chapter 20, John mentions four names specifically, and he refers to the to the disciples as a whole. These are people that would have been known in Jerusalem and even outside. Throughout the Gospels and even Paul's account of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, names are mentioned regularly. Paul even specifies that most of these people are still alive. In other words, what, are, what is John doing? What is Mark doing and Luke and Matthew and Paul? They're saying, look, feel free to check. Go ask Cleopas. She, he's still around. Go ask Peter. Go ask Mary. Better yet, go ask Thomas. <laughs> He's still around. They'll tell you exactly what I'm telling you. The third thing that, that 
uh, the final argument, I guess, for the resurrection that convinces me that that's the only plausible conclusion is the church itself. The church itself. In the months and years following the death of city, or the death of Jesus, a movement began in the city where Jesus was crucified. In the city. Both the Roman Empire and the religious establishment attempted to squash the Jesus movement, which would have been very easy if the resurrection claims were unsubstantiated. But the attempts to squash the church were unsuccessful. Then Jesus' followers began to experience some of the most difficult and gruesome persecution that history records. They were thrown to lions in the Colosseum. They were boiled in oil, drawn and quartered, exiled, beaten, imprisoned, beheaded, crucified, one of them even upside down. Now, if someone threatened your life, wouldn't you scramble to find an alternative explanation? Early Christ followers did not because they could not. Jesus had risen and therefore demonstrated that he was indeed the Son of God. Skeptics, again, I would encourage you to do your own research on the biblical account. Don't just take something at face value just because John Dominic Crossan said it or just because Bart Ehrman said it. Don't just take it at face value. Do the research. Do the rigorous work of scholarship and come to your own conclusion. Again, the Bible is not afraid of your scrutiny. A, a third answer to this question, who is Jesus? It might be this. Well, I'm a CEO. I'm a CEO. You know what a CEO is? It's not a chief executive officer. It's a Christian, uh, Christmas and Easter only. <laughs> Christmas and Easter only. Who is Jesus? Well, you know what? I'm here on Christmas and Easter. So yeah, I believe that he's God. Uh, I believe that he rose from the dead. But it really doesn't make a difference in my daily life. It makes a difference for me this day, and then I'll see you at Christmas. But it doesn't really make a difference on my day-to-day -day life. So there might be two reasons why you would give that answer. Number one is perhaps you're not aware as to why the resurrection of Christ is so significant. Perhaps you're not aware. More specifically, perhaps you're not aware as to why Jesus and his life is significant. So you've concluded that both Jesus and the resurrection are insignificant because you're not yet aware as to why they're significant. And that's fine. We'll get to you momentarily and we'll talk about why they're significant. The other reason that you might have concluded that Jesus is insignificant, so, so you're just a CEO, is actually fascinating to me. And, and honestly, I think this is the most prevalent response to this question, who is Jesus in modernity? When asked, who is Jesus, you might say, he claimed to be God, he rose from the dead, but that doesn't change me, I'll see you at Christmas. Can I, can I just tell you the truth in love this morning? Sometimes my wife has to do this for me. The reason that you claim that the resurrection is insignificant or fictitious is not because you actually believe that it's insignificant or fictitious. It's because you don't want to have to face the implications. So you degrade Jesus to the role of good teacher, even though he claimed to be deity. You reduce Jesus to a life exemplar, even though he claimed to be king. You believe an implausible theory about the resurrection, even though you know deep down it's not true. Because you know that if the resurrection is true, then Jesus has a rightful claim on your life. That he is who he says he is, Lord and God. But you don't want that. 
So you just do the rigorous work. You don't do the rigorous work of actual research. You base your belief system on desire and not on actual truth, and you act as if he's insignificant. Please, if that's you, I beg of you, do one of two things. One, stop it. (laughs) And just be honest with yourself and with others and say, you know what, I, I just don't want Jesus. Because at least then you're being intellectually honest. At least then you've admitted that you do not want to face resurrection reality because you know it would have implications on who you are. So just say it. The other option, and this is the better option, and I'll borrow Paul's words for our second option here. I beg of you, be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Bow the knee, honor him as king, worship him as God. That will make a difference in your everyday. But for those of you who believe that Jesus rose from the dead and thus demonstrated that he is God, but you are, as of yet, uncertain of the implications, I want to offer you three implications of the resurrection. In conclusion this morning, and Christ followers in this place, pay close attention, because this is why this day is so important to us. Three implications of the resurrection. Number one, the resurrection is the key that unlocks all of Scripture. The resurrection is the key that unlocks all of Scripture. Look back at our passage this morning. In verse 9, John writes this. He says, For as yet they, he means himself and Peter, did not understand the Scripture that he, Jesus, must rise from the dead. Why didn't they understand the Scripture? Well, because they didn't yet hold the key. But watch this now. In Luke chapter 24, Uh, The resurrected Jesus is walking with his followers on the road to Emmaus. And and Luke explains this, that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that's Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. When they saw the resurrected Jesus, suddenly all of scripture made sense in light of the resurrection. Why? Because the resurrection is the key to understanding all. All of Scripture. By way of example, uh, have you ever seen the movie The Sixth Sense? Sixth Sense? Raise your hand if you've seen that movie. Raise your hand. Good. How many of you have not seen that movie, Sixth Sense? Sixth Sense. Good. I don't want to ruin it for you, but Bruce Willis is dead the whole time. Um, And it's kind of a spoiler there. So you can only see The Sixth Sense twice, right? You can only see it twice because the first time you're tracking the whole time and you're with it and then it comes to the end and you're like, oh my gosh, he's dead the whole time. But then when you see it a second time, everything makes sense in light of the ending, doesn't it? Like when he's in a room trying to talk to his wife and she's not talking back to him and then you realize, oh, he's dead, that's why. Or when he's trying to talk to this kid and he's not really interacting and all this stuff. You know, it makes sense in light of the ending. In the same way, uh, the same thing goes for Scripture, except that our hero isn't dead the whole time. So apparently the sixth sense is like the anti-gospel, but that's beside the point. That's where my analogy falls apart. The point is this. If you read Scripture without the resurrection in mind, it's helpful at best, confusing in parts, and offensive at worst. However... Once you see the scripture in light of the resurrection, it all makes sense. 
Once you take that lens and apply it to the scripture, it all makes sense. Once you take that key, it will unlock it for you. I, I just A couple examples off the top of my head. God promises to fulfill the Davidic covenant and establish a forever Davidic king, but then David dies. And you go, what in the world is this? This doesn't make any darn sense at all. But then Jesus comes along, and he's a descendant of David, and then he rises from the dead, and you go, oh. Oh, because he, he can fulfill that promise because Jesus is risen from the dead. Or you go, the sacrificial system, they got to sacrifice a lamb every year. That seems a little odd. And then Jesus comes along and, and John, goes, John the Baptist goes, well, behold, the, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, well, that's an odd kind of statement to make. Or Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. Well, that seems really odd. But then when you see Jesus resurrected, you go, oh, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Oh, I can partake of his resurrection life now. That's what it means to eat his flesh and drink his blood. It's not real. It's metaphorical because he's risen and resurrected. The law and the prophets, the redemption of Israel, you name it, they all come into crystal clear view in light of the resurrection. Number two, the resurrection secures our future. The resurrection secures our future. Just before the cross, five chapters earlier in John chapter 15, Jesus promises that he will go and prepare a place for his disciples and he's going to come back and get them, which again is like a pipe dream unless he rises from the dead. While on the cross, Jesus promises a thief that he will enter into paradise that very day. Every other world religion offers the promise of an eternity that's based on someone's best guess. No one has been there and back except for Jesus. So he offers a secure future because he has been there and back and now is there, even in this moment. So for the Christ follower now, believers in this place, our eternity with Jesus, belonging, love, fellowship, wholeness, No tears, no sickness, no death, no dying, no shame. It's all secured by the resurrection, held fast by a Jesus who's conquered hell and death and the grave. Finally, the third implication of the resurrection is that Jesus is king. That Jesus is king. The absolute best and most appropriate response to the resurrection is recorded in our text from this morning. When the disciples report to Thomas that they had seen Jesus alive, Thomas was immediately skeptical at best, perhaps even cynical. It might be some of you this morning, you've got a friend in Thomas. So Thomas declares that he refuses to believe them unless he is able to touch the nail scars and put his hand in the gash in Jesus' side where the Roman soldier pierced him. Eight days later, Jesus visits his disciples once again and allows Thomas to do just that. Thomas's response is recorded in John chapter 20. Thomas answered him, man, you're a good teacher. No. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Perhaps if a person rose from the dead, it does not automatically make them king, perhaps. But if a person claims to be king and then they rise from the dead, their claim is certainly vindicated, is it not? 
Thomas's declaration that Jesus is king is fitting because in the resurrection, Jesus affirmed and proved what he had claimed all along, that he's the king bringing his kingdom. And today, we worship the king. That's what this Resurrection Sunday is all about. As we close this morning, the choir and band and team are going to come back up and uh, sing one more song for us called Mercy Tree that I absolutely love. My encouragement would be to listen to the lyrics because it sings the gospel from start to finish. It sings us through Good Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and it looks forward to our glorious future with the King. Listen closely to the chorus because at the end we're going to have an opportunity to join with these guys and lift our voices together and sing, Death has died and love has won. Let's pray together. Jesus, we exalt you this morning because you are resurrected, seated in glory, and, the, and because you are king. God, this day we set aside to remember and celebrate that all our cares, all our worries, all our anxiety, all our sickness, all our disease, our hopelessness, our worthlessness, our loneliness is all conquered because you are risen from the dead. We sing together now about that mercy tree. In Christ's name, amen.